Hi, I'm Matthew Kind. Every Monday, look for a fresh new episode where I'll take you behind the scenes and interview the insiders that are shaping the rapidly evolving cannabis industry. Learn more at cannainsider.com. That's C-A-N-N-A insider.com. Now here's your program. Cannabis license holders are using an interesting new way to free up capital to grow their business. Here to help us understand how this works is Anthony Coniglio of New Lake. Anthony, welcome to Canna Insider. Well, thank you for having me. Give us a sense of geography. Where are you in the world today? I am currently in Connecticut riding out the coronavirus wave. Okay. And what is New Lake on a high level? Yeah, we're a real estate company. We own 21 properties across eight states, and we're focused on building a diversified portfolio of retail and industrial properties that we lease to companies in the cannabis sector for use as dispensaries, as cultivation, processing, and manufacturing facilities. We acquire those properties using sale leaseback transactions, and our tenants are some of the most experienced and well-run businesses in the industry. And if I had to summarize it, our business model is quite simple. We earn revenue by charging rent. Our investors receive a nice, healthy quarterly dividend, and we believe there will be significant appreciation in the value of our portfolio as the legal status—excuse me—as the legal status of cannabis changes over time. Okay, so just to give people a snapshot: you work with license holders, and you say, "Hey, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of cash for your real estate and lease it back to you." That frees up your capital, and that allows our investors to make money. That's pretty much it in a nutshell, right? That's pretty much it. Yes. Okay. Okay. And so how much money have you raised so far? We've raised $100 million so far. Okay. And we've been able to deploy a lot of that. And we're out raising more capital today. I know we're all serious people here. Serious investors. We're wearing college, you know, collared shirts and you have know, sport coats on. But the moment you raise $100 million, do you just take some $100 bills and throw them up in the air and like fall back <laughs> on your bed and say – Money. Don't answer that question. It's going to make you sound unprofessional. Let's move on. Okay. So you've raised a hundred million. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the general commercial market here for real estate. It's a bloodbath. There's malls, office buildings, general retail, commercial real estate. It's a mess because of COVID-19. Where are we at the 10,000 foot level for people that don't follow it day by day? I would say we're in the early innings, to use a baseball analogy. For me, I tend to believe that most of the early prognostications will be overblown as it relates to commercial real estate. You know, so for instance, I think the death the death of the office is exaggerated. Um, I've managed distributed workforces before, and it takes the right person or the personality to operate remotely and maintain the same level of productivity. And so I believe that this early enthusiasm that we've been seeing for remote working on both the employers and the employees side, I think that's going to fade. I think people want to be with other people. I think employers want to have their people around. Um, Now, let me say, I do think that some trends have been accelerated for sure, whether it be retail or industrial real estate with respect to last mile and and those types of distribution strategies. So yes, there's some of those elements that have changed and perhaps there'll be some change in office, but I think we're still in the early innings. And I also think we're early because when you look at some of the defaults happening in retail or in office, or even to a lesser extent in industrial, 
that's really only been from the shutdown. We're just now entering this recession. And I think there's going to be a rolling occurrence of events that will further shape what happens from here. And that's why I say I think we're in the early innings. Okay. So you've carved out this niche here and, you know, a lot of people would be hesitant about investing in commercial real estate right now, but this very specific niche where, you know, cannabis has been deemed essential. So it's kind of a different thing. Investors can say, well, you know, governments all across the country are deeming this essential state governments, local governments. So how has that kind of affected the conversation and affected your your business, both in terms of the license holders and the investors? Wow. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's amazing how things change in only 90 to 100 days. And so we're sitting here in a world where only 60 percent of retail rents are being paid. Shopping center REITs are collecting only 50 to 55 percent of their rents. And there's even probably upwards of 10% of office tenants aren't paying their rent. So we're very happy with our 100% collection rate and our 100% occupancy rate. We think it's a testament to our disciplined underwriting and focus on diversification. And yes, as you pointed out, our tenants did benefit from the essential designation. But there are some real estate platforms out there that focus on cannabis that are dealing with some delinquencies and default issues. So Listen, we're not declaring victory by any stretch of the imagination, but we think the last three months reminds us why we focus on diversification and why we emphasize sound underwriting practices. Now, let me pivot a little bit to the, you know, talking about that opportunity around COVID-19 and about how this is, you know, cannabis is a really different sector. And while COVID-19 is taking a toll on, gosh, it's taking a toll on all of us, right? Our communities, our families, our friends, our neighbors, um, and we're leading into the recession, as many of your listeners know, this industry has really weathered the storm better than other industries, and not just because of the essential designation, but really I've been so impressed with the way the industry has risen up in the face of this challenge, come together. And I think they've changed the perception at the state level, you know, at the legislative level, at the regulatory level, and also in their community level. And I think that's going to bode really well for the industry and just fuel that long-term secular growth trend that the industry is in today. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on the opportunities in cannabis. I think the essential designation helps, but this industry is growing very rapidly and it's just so exciting to be part of it. Now, all not all geographies are the same in terms of cannabis. What states and cities do you think are the most desirable to buy real estate in? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. While we look at opportunities in all markets across the country, we do like to focus on states and jurisdictions that have a more limited licensing regime. Examples of those would be Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, Illinois, New Jersey, Connecticut. Those would be just a few of those uh, states that you see a more limited number of licenses being granted by the regulators. Okay. So limited licensing, that's key. That's the moat. Also, I would say difficult Difficult governments is a moat, too, as, as perverse as that sounds. I think I'm thinking of Chicago and Boston, not calling you both out, but I kind of am. Difficult, difficult environments kind of make it so people are like, wow, I have to put up with so much dysfunctional government that it's really a barrier to entry. Is there anything else besides limited licensure that you look at? I mean, obviously, population's a factor. Is population density. What else do you think about? 
Yes, we definitely look at density. We definitely want to make sure that the properties, whether they're retail or industrial, we want to make sure we understand what the alternative use is for um, and what they could be applied to outside of cannabis. It's critically important to understand how you can mitigate your downside risk. In some of the deals that we see, quite frankly, you have to zoom out eight, nine, ten times on Google Maps simply to see another building. I mean, literally, some of these are in the middle of nowhere. I don't know how they get power and water into some of these locations. And you're right that the, the limited license jurisdictions do provide that moat. Um, it's a better operating environment for the operator, meaning hopefully they have an easier time of generating cash flow and profit. Um, and there's intrinsic value in those licenses. So if an operator does fall on hard times or is, is not able to operate the the location to profitability, there's a long list of people who've been waiting for entree to the state that would be happy to step into the location and operate it. And, um, and so therefore, we think those companies in distress would seek to monetize that intrinsic value in the license. Okay. So $100 million raised. When did you close your first acquisition? October 15th, 2019. Okay. So moving fast here. Yes. Okay. So if I'm a license holder listening right now, how does this work? I, do I find real estate I want to buy, then reach out to you? Or do you buy real estate and then a license holder comes in? How does this work? Yes, in multiple ways. I will say what we don't do is we don't purchase a property and take tenancy risk or vacancy risk. So we won't purchase a property and then go and entitle it and then try to find an operator. Right now, most of our transactions are where operators own the property and they come to us and they want to unlock capital and raise that non-dilutive capital to invest in their business. And so we will do a sell-leaseback transaction where they don't have to leave the facility. There's no interruption to their operations. It's all on paper. They sell us the property. At the same time, they uh, enter into a long-term lease with us. What we're starting to see more of and doing more of is a situation where an operator has identified a property they want to be in because it fits either their retail desires or their growing desires in terms of location, and they are securing a purchase agreement for the property. We will step in. We will assume their role in the purchase transaction. We will buy that property with our dollars, and we will concurrently enter into a a long-term lease with them. So in that instance, the property never has to be funded by the operator. We fund it right from purchase. And then ultimately, over time, as the industry normalizes, I'd expect our dialogue with our tenants and other operators in the industry to evolve where we are bringing them properties that we think fit what their particular needs are. We will transact only after they've agreed that that's a particular property. So we do see it in phases. Okay. So if I'm an investor listening or even even a license holder, I'm thinking, do, are, you know, is, is leverage or a lot of debt going to be deployed here? And does that put me at risk? Can you talk about how you view leverage or where its place is or is there's no place at all for it? Um, there is a place, but there's, in our opinion, a very careful place for it. We think there's very attractive returns to be had right now without adding in the added risk of meaningful leverage. What we would want in leverage is a debt facility that had some term to it. There is no what I would call regular way refinance market for cannabis real estate. 
And quite frankly, that's part of the big opportunity here for us as a company is banks aren't serving uh, the needs and traditional credit providers and capital providers for commercial real estate aren't serving the needs of the sector. So if we do layer in some debt over uh, the near term, it would have to have three to five years of maturity um, and it would have to provide us some meaningful flexibility in order for us to get comfortable in taking on that type of risk. And I wouldn't foresee it for a meaningful amount. On $100 million, perhaps we might look to layer in $20 million. And I think of that debt more as a bridge to additional capital raises than I do as what I would traditionally call structural debt, where we're levering a portfolio to drive a return. Okay. So what kind of returns are you paying and invest, investors expect? I mean, you can't, you can only really talk, talk for sure about dividends paid and then this kind of pro forma or it's, you know, our best guess based on where everything's at right now on kind of a shifting landscape of probabilities. But what's kind of your, your best idea of where dividends are going? We have paid uh, 8% dividend yield quarterly uh, for the last few quarters since we started purchasing our first uh, our first building. And we feel comfortable being able to pay the 8% dividend yield uh, as we continue to go along. And for our investors, the opportunity is not just to get paid the dividend yield. And there may even be upside on the 8% given we think we could generate a net 10% um, after expenses for our for our company. Uh, and so beyond that 8 to 10% yield that's unlevered, we also see the opportunity to realize gains by getting a public listing of our company and having our, our meaningful above market yield with long duration get valued by public market investors at potentially two to three times our book value. Hmm. Well, that sounds juicy. So people are like, hey, I can get these div dividends, but also at some time in the future, I'm, uh, there might be a public offering. No one knows the future, but how far out would that be? Um, well, right now what you're seeing in IPO markets are companies that would typically lead the way in this environment, healthcare companies, tech companies, uh, anything that plays into the theme of what we're going to continue to see around COVID for the next six months or so. Even Albertsons filed for an IPO uh, last week. So it's not for the next six months at least. It's probably a next year event at the earliest when the market is willing to consider non down the middle of the fairway type of um, uh, type of offering documents. So for us, we're going to continue to raise capital. I mentioned we're raising another 50 million of capital. We'll be at 150. Um, and we're going to continue to get our company ready to jump through that window of opportunity when it presents itself. Because we think not only does it provide liquidity for our investors um, and provide a potential valuation bump as well, but more importantly, in order to continue to grow our business, scale our company, uh, we need to have access to a ready and deep pool of uh, of capital, and the public markets are that deep, robust pool of capital that we would gain access to. Okay, so if a tenant can't pay for some reason, we kick them out, and then we start to sell tickets for a rave, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, what do we do? What? What? I mean, there's. It's it's obviously you're saying you're thinking that when you're looking at a property you're saying well who else can come in here what other industrial uses are as you as you mentioned you know could it be used for something else 
But I mean, obviously you don't want that prospect to begin with of someone not be able to pay. So you kind of look at their creditworthiness, how well their business is going. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, this is probably one of the most important things that we do. This is our entire business and we would call it layered risk mitigation. And it starts with understanding the operator, um, how they manage their business, how they run their business, what's their strategy and what's their, very importantly, what's their ability to raise capital. There are a number of people that can run a good business, but they don't run it well enough to be able to raise capital on it. Um, and that is critical because in this in this industry where uh, the industry is just so dynamic, capital is so important. So one's ability to raise capital is important to assess. Um, beyond that, we clearly we look at the balance sheet, we look at the P&L, we look at their projections. Um, we further then look at the property itself and understand how critical is this property to the overall strategy of the business. Is this a tiny portion of their um, of their operations, or is this a mission critical piece of real estate that they will need to protect at at all costs uh, in order to maintain their own cash flow? We go further to then look at the contract we have with them and build in features that provide us additional protection like security deposits and parent guarantees uh, and other, in many cases, non-traditional covenants that um, do give us the opportunity to understand what's going on at the property, what's the revenue being produced, what's the condition that it's in. Um, and then we look at the alternative use and we understand if, if we're wrong on all of that, and you can't be right 100% of the time as much as we try, but if we're wrong on all of that, here's where the limited license state kicks in. If we're wrong on all of that and they just don't do a good job with it, um, there, are, uh, there are many, many folks and companies that would love to enter into these limited license states. So in that period of distress, we don't expect the operator to toss the keys or to give up and, and risk losing that intrinsic value to the license. And in some of these states, licenses are trading for $8 million, $15 million, $20 million, over $20 million. And so we think the operators, instead of going dark for and uh, just giving up, are likely to sell that license garner the intrinsic value of the license. And since the license is typically attached to the property in the in, in these limited license states, we then have a new tenant that will go in and operate the dispensary or operate the cultivation facility and pick up the cash flows. Um, and so that layered risk mitigation is really important. I guess then lastly, I should have mentioned is understanding that alternative use. If for some reason we can't get a cannabis business to take over the lease and to step into the facility, making sure we're in a location that isn't in the middle of nowhere, that has no alternative use, but that there is a well-developed market in proximity to our location that we would have a reasonable um, um, likelihood of being able to redeploy to other industries. Okay. So is this only for the big boys, uh, like the MSOs, the multi-state operators, or who's the right fit for this type of scenario and sale buyback or the sale lease scenario? Who fits? Is it, is it only the big guys or is there medium and also small guys? And how do they fit into this and girls? It's a great question. We, we get it asked a lot. It is up and down. It is up and down the spectrum. We do have some large MSOs in our portfolio, names like a Columbia Care or Grassroots or a Pharmacan. We also have a single state operator um, in the state of Pennsylvania. We think they're the, probably the best or one of the best 
cultivators in the state of Pennsylvania. Our property is uh, nice proximity to Pittsburgh. And so, yes, we will do business with a single state operator. We've looked at regional operators. Um, really what sets businesses apart is management teams, their capital structure, their ability to raise capital, and then also something quite simple is audited financials. We've come across some folks who don't have audited financials, and as much as we want to trust people um, as good stewards of capital for uh, on behalf of our investors, we do have to have an independent assessment of the assets and liabilities of the entities we're entering into a long-term contract with. Sure. And just at a high level, what's the breakdown in terms of cultivators, extractors, processors, people that do all of the above? How, how is the real estate broken down? Today, we own 17 dispensaries and four cultivation facilities. And when I look out at the opportunity, I'd say the opportunity is, a, is across the spectrum. I think we'll need, undoubtedly, we will need more dispensaries across this country as the industry continues to grow. Undoubtedly, we will need more grow facilities across this country uh, as the industry continues to grow. And then I think we'll start to see more and more processing opportunities and then ultimately logistics properties. Um, and I'm really excited for uh, to watch all of those evolve and develop. Okay. And the lease length, it, are you pretty open to what the tenant needs or are you looking at a certain duration for your investors? How does that conversation unfold? A duration and risk are key to that analysis. I would say that the retail leases tend to be a little on the shorter side versus the longer side. So they'll be under 15, anywhere from call it 12 to 15 years. And on the cultivation side, they'll typically be 15, sometimes up to 20 years. Okay. And is there any kind of improvements that a tenant wants to do that you say, hey, that's not really going to be valuable in a secondary market? You, you, know, you want to put in a chocolate river like Willy Wonka, like I don't think that's a good ROI investment. Do you get involved in that at all or you just let them do what they want? Well, we certainly get involved because we own the property. And we want to make sure we understand what they're spending money for that we ultimately will own. Um, and again, mitigating risk. What we found to date, though, is most people are very, very responsible about what it is they're looking to buy. I mean, these are expensive facilities. Right? Everybody wants to have a world-class cultivation facility or a beautiful, uh, comfortable and inviting dispensary environment. And so um, I don't want to say no expenses are sparred, but you know, these are these are significant investments. So we spend a lot of time understanding what those improvements will be and then quantifying how we could possibly recover those uh, improvements relative to the market we're in. Um, but so far, it's been a very, very reasonable dialogue. We've had nobody that's wanted to uh, install chocolate rivers yet. <laughs> Too bad. Lack of imagination, I say, but hey, it's just me. Now, actually, I would, you know, if, you know, if I'm consuming cannabis on a Saturday and I'm told that someplace has a chocolate river that I can dip a cup into and get a drink of that, I might go just for that. That sounds like a new cannabis experience theme park that you can start, Matt. Yeah. Gosh, I'm thinking small. Thanks for pointing that out, Anthony. Okay. <laughs> so the, the tenants involved in the, in the build out there, but as long as it's reasonable, you pretty much say yes. It's not like you, you're in the business of saying no, you want them to get as many sales as possible and people aren't doing anything outlandish typically. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you look at the, when you look at the revenue that's generated in the cannabis industry relative to other industries on a per square foot basis, 
we have some of this data where um, we our properties generate approximately six times what an alternative use business would generate for those particular properties. Uh, and that speaks to, I think, what a lot of people who operate and invest in the cannabis industry are after. Um, this is high quality business with high quality products that drives uh, pre-tax, that is, high quality margins. And we think that improves the risk profile of the business. And so if there are reasonable improvements to the property that can enhance, further enhance revenue, we're all for it. Okay. So people are listening that either they want to connect with Anthony, their investor, and this sounds interesting to them. We'll get all Anthony's contact information here shortly. And then if there's anybody that has a big, uh, or, or has a facility and they want, they're interested in having it, you know, leasing it back, um, and having you like buy it, you know, we can give Anthony's contact information out at the end of the show, as I mentioned. So we'll do that. But before we do that, let's, let's jump to some personal development questions here, Anthony. Is there a book that's had a big impact on your life or your way of thinking that you'd like to share with listeners? You know, there are a few that just actually jump into my mind. If I could have some latitude and give you a couple. Sure. I, yeah, I put these in categories and I try to read a lot. One that really shaped me a long time ago and really sticks with me today around management is Straight from the Gut by Jack Welsh. Okay. You just really understanding how he brought management into the GE environment. And I think Jack these days is becoming a little bit of a, a controversial figure um, now that he's passed. But in any event, you know, there are some unbelievable lessons in that book that have, uh, that have worked really well for me. I've also managed businesses that have undergone change, and there's a book that sticks out, uh, Three Box Solution. The author is escaping my memory, but The Three Box Solution, which really talks about how do you take a business that's somewhat mature and, and continue to drive profitability and cash flow from that while investing in the future um, and being able to give those new ideas the space and the capital to gestate and grow and become that new um uh, that new barn burning product, if you will. And then one just most recently that really is sticking in my head is a book called Range. It's gotten a lot of press, uh, David Epstein. And really what that's what that spoke to me about was this concept about being a generalist. And through my career, I've um, I've done a lot of different things in my career. And I've always questioned, boy, would I have been better being highly, highly specialized instead of being a little bit more of this generalist? And so maybe it, it resonates with me because it speaks to what I've done. But range really, um, I think, was a great example of how maybe it's not so good to be this highly, highly, highly specialized person. And maybe we're more effective as business people and uh, husbands, wives, friends, relatives, if we're a little bit more broader in what we do in our lives. Okay. You're the Swiss Army knife is what you're saying. <laughs> Without the edge. Okay. All right. So what do you think is the most interesting thing going on in this field where you're just looking around and you're like, wow, you know, I'm focused on what I'm doing here, but that's just straight up interesting. In real estate, it has to be this debate about how coronavirus will impact the real estate industry. Um, I think it certainly will, but I do think that people are exaggerating what that impact um, will ultimately be. I'm, I'm a pendulum guy, which is to say that the pendulum swings back and forth, back and forth. Um, and at certain times, it'll be higher in its swing than lower. 
But I do think at the end of the day, the pendulum spends more time in the middle than it does at uh, at its endpoints. You know, I would say I would agree with you on that. I, I generally think that way too. But I'm going to challenge you a little bit here because we're. I think we're in the possibly in the midst of another secular trend. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, The Fate of the States by Meredith Whitney. She was a famous financial analyst um, years back, and she wrote this book about how these wealthy, big cities in the United States, mostly on the coast, um, they have kind of peaked, and they'll come back at some point, but they're not treating their citizens well. And Places like New York City, where I've heard estimates that 60% of the Upper East Side is still not even there in their homes. That might come back. But have these big cities in some ways peaked in that they're overtaxing, overtaxing and overburdening their, uh, their citizens with property taxes, income taxes, and they're just straight up leaving? I mean, I'm guessing you're probably – you said you're in Connecticut. Are you, are you in Fairfield County, Connecticut? Indeed. Okay, so – here we go. And I lived in Manhattan for 20 years. So I, there's so many people, and I'm sure you know so many people too, that are in the tri-state area of, of New York City. And now they are buying real estate and putting their center of gravity in Florida and spending six months and a day in Florida um, and like slowly kind of minimizing their exposure to the tri-state area because there's, there's so much intellectual capital and actual capital there, but they're slowly kind of minimizing exposure from this, these tax sucking entities. And so when I see someplace like New York city, I think the best of the best will always be there, but maybe people that were on that, like marginally, they're saying, you know, maybe I'll go, uh, somewhere else, you know, maybe I'll go to Boise or maybe I'll go to Salt Lake city or something like that. So we have these two trends intersecting, which is kind of this secular trend away from these, uh, cities that are trying to extract everything from their citizens uh, on top of the COVID response where people are moving virtual. Any thoughts there? Yes. I'll give you some thoughts and I'll throw out, you know, what I see as a real wild card in this dialogue um, and how it plays out. I think you're right at the margin. I think we all can have examples where somebody fled for Florida or somebody went to Nashville or somebody went here. Or the, you know, you're right. A lot of the people from the Upper East Side or Soho, certain parts of the city have been able to flee to other areas, either a second home that they have out of the city or maybe they went and they rented a home out of the city. But here's what I would say. Cities have grown because they've provided something that people really want whether it be the cultural opportunities, whether it be the experience of being with other people, um, whether it be education or jobs. And when we think about the heartbeat of these cities, it's not someone that's at the point in their career where they could spend six months and a day in Florida and then come back to New York for their weekend trips. The heartbeat of these cities um, are you know, the 25 to 50-year-olds and the people who are who are starting out in their careers and then starting a family and then developing a family. And they're there for different reasons. They're there for jobs. They're there for relationships. They're there for to capture opportunity. And so I think that continues. Will we see, in my opinion, 5% maybe leave? Yeah, I think we definitely could see that. But here's where I'd get to the wild card. The wild card is safety and Without getting political about uh, what's happening in our country and the dialogue around defunding the police, I do think that if city legislatures 
Uh, well, I think the city legislatures need to figure out a way to thread the needle because if they reallocate funds from policing in a manner that results in higher levels of crime, then I think all bets are off the table because I think people will vote with their feet in terms of their safety. And what you end up having, I worry about, is a self-fulfilling prophecy where as more people leave, there's less of a tax base and less of a service economy um, that's needed to serve those folks, which means there's fewer jobs, which just maybe only puts more pressure on it. So to me, that's a real wild card. I think we have to watch and make sure that the cities can manage um, the policing budgets in a manner that ensures that safety and crime um, maintain themselves at a level that has really drawn people back into the cities. But you know, my last thought on this, many people said, nah, after 9-11, New York City was dead and it came back stronger than ever. Yeah. Um, yes, things are a little different here. But again, sometimes the early prognostications are a little exaggerated. Well, I really hope so because it's really a big jewel of the country and certainly people from all over the world look to New York City for a lot of different kinds of leadership. So I, I hope you're right. And here's one other question for you. What is one – you already gave me one thought that's kind of counter-trend here. What's another thought that you have that most people would disagree with you on? That's a Peter Thiel question. <laughs> for your listeners, so here's where I'm – another place where I'm a contrarian. I think – all of this talk about um, the haves and the have-nots in the cannabis industry and there's going to be mass carnage in 2020 and everybody's going out of business except for a select few that are able to do this, that, and the other. And there's going to be massive waves and consolidation and the landscape's going to look totally different by the end of the year. I don't buy it. Um, I will say I'm being dramatic, but yes, for sure there will be M&A. There was a lot of M&A last year, and there was a lot of M&A in the year before that. Um, yes, there will be companies that go out of business, but there were companies that went out of business last year and companies that went out of business the year before. What I think will drive less of it is the fact that there's so much money sitting on the sidelines, and these businesses have so, such great promise that I do think there's enough capital to continue to provide a lifeline for some of those companies that are in the middle that are, quite aren't there, but they, they, they're not really dead yet. And so I think there's enough capital where people will be able to, um, to get enough of that lifeline to keep their business going, hoping for the better days. And then the other thing is I just wouldn't underestimate people in this industry. I think people in this industry are scrappy, they're smart, they're resourceful. I mean, look at what they've been able to do to date. I don't think you're going to see a large part of this sector decide, well, you know, I just can't make a go of it. It's too hard. I think they're going to figure it out to a large part. So that's where I'm a bit of a contrarian. Yes, we'll have M&A. Yes, we'll have some businesses fail. Um, will it be 5x what it is in the last over the last few years? No, I don't. I just don't see it. Okay. Well, you're an optimist, and I think it's a good thing to be. So, Anthony, as we close, can you tell listeners how to reach out to you? A, investors, I'm sure it's accredited investors you're looking for, and then B, license holders. How can they reach out to you and see if they're a fit? Yes, accredited investors for sure. And so for everybody, there are two ways that you can do it. You could either go to our website, which is New Lake 
newlake.com, N-E-W-L-A-K-E.com, and click on the info button and submit your information, and one of the team will get back to you. We typically get back within 24 hours. Um, Also, feel free to uh, hit me on LinkedIn at Anthony Coniglio. Um, I'm happy to respond to that. Uh, I'd prefer it all go through the website because it'll be easier for us to track it and make sure that everybody's getting the response um, that they deserve. How about if everybody just sends you like funny memes, memes on LinkedIn? Would that be good <laughs> forever, not just for a couple of weeks? As, as long as I can resend them out, yes. I <laughs> love funny memes. Okay. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I think you picked a really good niche at a really good time. So lucky and right. I think those are two great things to have, two circles overlapping. Good luck with everything, and keep us updated. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, and I enjoyed our discussion. If you enjoyed the show today, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you might be using to listen to the show. Every five-star review helps us to bring the best guest to you. Learn more at canninsider.com forward slash iTunes. What are the five disruptive trends that will impact the cannabis industry in the next five years? Find out with your free report at canninsider.com forward slash trends. Have a suggestion for an awesome guest on Canna Insider? Simply send us an email at feedback at cannainsider.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Canna Insider or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments. Promotional consideration may be provided by select guests, advertisers, or companies featured in Canna Insider. Lastly, the host or guests on Canna Insider may or may not invest in the companies or entrepreneurs profiled on the show. Please consult your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Final disclosure to see if you're still paying attention. This little whistle jingle you're listening to will get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Thanks for listening and look for another Canna Insider episode soon. Take care. Bye-bye.